good afternoon everybody thank you all so much for joining us i'm very excited about this episode of money concepts because we have a great guest ali lada uh, but before we have uh, ali say a few words uh, i i want to introduce him but but before that i have to mention that this particular episode i'm doing it from my friend's house and i have one dog and my friend has three dogs so if you hear some dogs barking i apologize for that uh so uh, the thing i really like about ali is that um, he's got a strong understanding of accounting and business fundamentals so he he really understands how businesses work and uh, how how they get financing and what they do with the financing how they create value for uh, their owners for customers for various stakeholders and um, he also understands very well the movement of money in and out of businesses so um, things like uh, prepaid revenue and inventory management and uh, so many things that we will get into later in this podcast he, this guy really understands the fundamentals of how businesses work and what makes them valuable and he not only has an understanding of these concepts he also does a very good job explaining these concepts uh, to a lay audience and um, so if you, if you take a, a book on accounting uh, chances are you you will fall asleep uh, before you read the first chapter uh but if you follow ali on twitter and read some of his uh, threads and some of the um, some of his posts uh, they cover kind of the same concepts but in such an interesting and engaging way and i i really appreciate that uh, so there was this thread that he wrote uh, about accounting the the fundamentals of accounting how cash accounting is different from accrual based accounting and he managed to get something like what is it that that tweet that thread went viral and you you got uh, something like 100000 likes yeah, or 110 yeah. almost 100 oh 110 <laughs> yeah <laughs> well uh, but who's counting right <laughs> <laughs> and you know the funny thing is i was about to not publish this thread cuz i thought who would be interested in this <laughs> but uh, what do you know people are interested in accrual accounting Uh, well people are interested in accrual accounting if it is explained uh, in in a in a way that resonates i appreciate uh, so, so that there are tons of books on accrual accounting that uh, people just fall asleep through <laughs> so yeah 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 when i wrote that thread the highest form of praise i got was uh, really from some students and what they said was this explains accrual versus cash accounting better than my professor explained it to me and that to me was the highest form of praise because i was like wow then i'm this this must have been good <laughs> well uh that if you, if you've met a lot of accounting professors that is a low bar i would say <laughs> <laughs> it, it may be high praise but it's a low bar <laughs> <laughs> it's true yeah 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 100% yeah. Uh, so so the other thing that i'm really excited about is uh, is our upcoming course Uh, so you and i we are getting together and creating this course um and and the course is very very aligned with today's topic for this podcast uh it's about uh, this this wonderful quote that warren buffett has um he he says 
he's a great investor yes but he's also a business operator so before he got into uh, b- before berkshire became so big when berkshire was still a small company uh, buffett was still uh, taking um, uh, t- taking a big share of the daily responsibilities of of running the business and making capital allocation decisions within each subsidiary and so on now he adopts a more hands off approach but uh, the things that taught him um, made him a better investor during those days uh, he would help run the insurance operation uh, he he would uh, provide inputs to the people at see scandies and so on uh, he he would run the textile operations of uh, of berkshire hathaway which originally started out as a textile company and these things they really gave him a great appreciation for why see scandy is a wonderful business whereas berkshire hathaway the textile company the textile mills why is that a terrible business and as he was operating these businesses he understood these concepts uh, through through a very hands on kind of approach uh, the, these learnings uh, were driven to him um, driven home to him uh, very powerfully and that shaped his journey as an investor so uh, if you want to become a great investor uh, it's a good idea to learn from those people who actually operate and run businesses because they can teach you so much about business uh, that that is really useful as uh, to an investor that other investors may not be able to teach you and similarly uh, he says that because he's an investor because he likes to look at everything from a return standpoint and so on uh, that makes him a better operator of businesses as well so he knows when a business is going downhill for example and so there are both these perspectives the perspective of a business operator and the perspective of an investor and uh, these are complementary skills and they reinforce each other so being a, a good investor makes you a good operator and being a good operator makes you a good investor and it's it's this virtuous cycle and that is a big part of why buffett is who he is today mm-hmm. uh, and we we want to bring some flavor of this in in our course that we plan to offer so if, if you want to say a few words about about our course that's that'll be great yeah no um uh, to build on what you said um this course will be helpful for anybody who's looking to become like you said a better investor so that means they make better capital allocation decisions about how they how they invest their money by buying stocks or other assets etc and the other thing is we're also trying to target a lot of you know business owners that are struggling to understand or have a you know a bit of a, a bit of a hard time understanding how their businesses finance and accounting works and we're really trying to sort of break down some of these concepts that sometimes accountants say Oh this is too complicated. Oh don't worry, you as a business owner don't need to worry about this. No no no, as a business owner you should be able to understand some of these concepts. It's just that sometimes people, other accountants or finance professionals don't take the time to sit down with you and break it down or explain it simply. And I feel like that's a great injustice that is being done for a lot of business owners. Because let's be honest, if you're a business owner, sometimes your expertise is in engineering or you are an expert in something in healthcare. 
you're not necessarily going to know everything that there is to know about accounting or finance, but you should be allowed to have a basic understanding of it. And you shouldn't be told by a finance professional or an accountant that, hey, it's not your job. You don't need to understand it. I feel like every business owner, it's fundamental to understand some of these concepts at a basic level. You don't need to understand everything, but some of the basics are definitely concepts that you can understand. Absolutely. So so an accountant is not just somebody you, you talk to once a year and get them to do your taxes or whatever. Uh, you have to learn the concepts for yourself and then apply them throughout the year as you make decisions about your business day in and day out. Exactly. And that, exactly. That, that, that makes so much sense. Yeah. You're looking for more of a, you know, just an accountant, like you said, once a year, more of somebody like an advisor to you as you're, as you're running your business to, and not to, you don't need to listen to everything the advisor says. They just tell you, Hey, maybe you should check out this aspect of your business or look into this or address this risk. That's what the advisor is there for. You don't need to take all of their advice. Um, they're just there to be a sounding board and somewhat of a guide to help you as you build your business. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, it, it seems like you, uh, on, on Twitter at least, uh, you grew to a large following uh, very quickly. And um, so were you always interested in finance and accounting in these topics? So I, I, I don't know much about uh, your, your story. So where did you, uh, like, where did you grow up? What did you study? Uh, how did you become interested in finance and accounting? And how did you come to realize that uh, this would be a great Twitter account to set up just to talk about uh, the fundamentals of owning and operating businesses uh, from a finance and accounting standpoint. So if, if you could share your, your journey with us, that'll be great. Yeah, no, I, I'll go back. So I, uh, I'm Canadian, so I live in Toronto. So I don't know if there are any Canadians joining us today on the, uh, on the call-in. Uh, grew up in Toronto, as, went to school here as well. I'd say school here, university, you know, very similar to, to the way the U.S. is with some slight differences, of course. Um, initially started my career as an accountant. So I worked at one of the big four accounting firms. And the reason for that was I wouldn't say I really had a passion for accounting. It's just that the school that I went to they were heavily sponsored by the big four accounting firms. They, it was kind of a funnel to become like a, an audit or an accountant for the big four. They sponsored a lot of on-campus events. We had strong accounting teachers. Um, a lot of my friends were going into accounting. So I said, what the hell? Let me just do this. Because let's be honest, when you're in your early 20s or you know, uh, late teens, you really don't know what you want to do with, a, you know, with certainty. You're like, oh, this is what my friends are doing. This seems kind of cool. I kind of like it. Let me try this. Um, so I graduated uh, in the financial crisis, actually. Uh, and accounting seemed to be a safe place to be because all of my friends who had jobs in finance, etc., some of the investment banks started to pull the offers. They started to rescind the offers. Because let's be honest, some of those investment banks don't even exist anymore um, that were there in 2008. So right. accounting seemed like a really good bet and very safe. Uh, started there, got my CPA, uh, very similar to the way a lot of them were too aggressive with their accounting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, 
did that for three years. And believe it or not, I actually, after the three years, I actually hated accounting. I was like, there's no way I'm doing this for the rest of my life. I hate it. I want to pursue a career in finance. By then, you know, the finance industry was going through a lot of change, but it was still sexy to be an investment banker, you know, be somebody in capital markets, etc. So I said, okay, that's what I want to be. You know, this seems like a very sexy career. It's so interesting. It's awesome. So I sort of transitioned away from accounting. I worked in uh, one of the advisory groups at the big four, which is a bit more sort of focused on doing uh, private company M&A valuations for, you know, smaller companies, the stuff basically that the big bulge bracket investment banks don't touch that are too small. A lot of the accounting firms uh, handle in their advisory divisions or their consulting divisions. So I spent a little bit of time there and basically got the transferable skills, and I put this in quotation marks, to be able to then say to the folks in capital markets that, hey, guys, I know I'm an accountant, but look, I have these transferable skills because I've done private company M&A. I can work in capital markets. So that worked out quite well for me because I was able to sort of do that consulting bid for about a couple of years. And then I moved over and worked at... Um, uh, two investment banks. So one was Macquarie, so the Australian investment bank that had an arm here in Canada. Um, and I worked at uh, Bank of Montreal, which is one of the big bulge bracket investment banks here in Canada. I know they don't have the, they, you know, they're seen as a smaller player in the US, but in Canada, they're one of the biggest. Like, you know, we have five big banks here. BMO is one of the biggest. Right. Um, so there I worked in uh, equity research for three years, sort of cut my teeth at understanding capital markets how to value companies, how to develop financial models. Um, and, you know, we can, we can go deeper as to like some of the issues with the equity research industry and how people make investment decisions and stuff. Learned a lot there just about investing. It was really helpful. Um, and then I transitioned over to working in um, uh, at Apple, basically Apple's Canadian office, their headquarters here. Um, my job there was to basically work in uh, FP&A, so financial planning analysis. Basically, uh, that entailed me basically taking Apple's money and figuring out how we could allocate the company's money to help drive iPhone sales, how to increase iPhone sales across the country, basically. So basically taking Apple, Apple's money and investing it and seeing how we could increase demand for iPhones. Wow. So yes. when you joined Apple, what were the iPhone sales and what are the iPhone sales today? Uh, so when I joined Apple, it was, oh, right. So, so good question. So I joined Apple in 2019. Um, and this was right when, uh, Tim Cook basically had an all hands meeting because Apple had, uh, revised their guidance down early start of 2019, because I think of issues in China, if my memory serves me right. Um, China demand was soft and Apple literally like had to revise their guidance down. The stock was like in a complete free fall as well. Like I think it went, it went, it, it, it lost like something like 13, 14% of its value in one day. Was, was that around the time the company said, we are no longer going to be uh, telling you how many iPhones we sold? We, we are it, no longer going to share unit volume and things like that? It was around there. Yes. Yes. Correct. Correct. It was around there. Um, so iPhone sales started softening and I was like, damn, did I join like a sinking ship here? <laughs> like, and, and you know, the funny thing was when I joined Apple, I was like, you know, if this, this becomes like another Blackberry, they have enormous amounts of cash on their balance sheet. I'm sure they could figure this out. They'll either just buy somebody else or figure it out, right? They have enough runway. So that was my sort of, um, 
a decision when I actually joined Apple. I thought, okay, look, iPhone demand is still relatively strong. There's the 5G supercycle. They have a lot of money on their balance sheet. They could figure it out if iPhone fits sales creator. Um, so join them. And then funny enough, uh, from 2019 and obviously into 2021, uh, the stock obviously went went up like crazy. And they've had, uh, I believe, yeah, one of the stock splits happened in uh, 2020 or 2021 where it's split four to one. So it's been it's been fantastic. I joined at a time when, you know, the company basically gives you RSUs as part of your compensation. My RSUs thankfully got locked at the lower price because the stock took a nosedive the time I joined. So that was a blessing in disguise. It wasn't my doing. My um, Basically, the price that I got my shares at was, was quite low. And then from there, the stock just went up and I would just got lucky because, you know, all of my RSUs were, were, <laughs> were at a good value. So that was just luck. Um, and then I'd say during the pandemic, so 2020, 2021, um, everybody I'm sure had, you know, a lot of free time on their hands. I started to think about, about what I could do on the side. And, uh, a couple of my friends who run startups, they're engineers and they're basically doing their own accounting, their own bookkeeping. Um, and you know, what if I, since I had some free time, what I said was, let me help you with this. You know, you're an engineer, you don't know anything about depreciation and stuff. Let me just help you look. And I'm sure you can, I can take this off your hands. They gladly gave me this. And initially I got my first clients. Uh, they were just friends and I was working for free. I wasn't even charging them. I was just doing it for free because I was learning some of the work as well. Right. Um, and then slowly, slowly that sort of picked up and I got more clients through just word of mouth, et cetera, et cetera. I uh, did a little bit of advertising, a little bit of marketing, got my website up, uh, got my website up, et cetera. And then in uh, September of 2021, so not too long ago, about seven months ago, I was able to quit my job at Apple. And now this is what I do full time. Um, I'd say and then in October, November ish, I was like, OK, I need like a content type strategy, you know, in order to sort of build a funnel to get clients, to get people interested in what I do, et cetera. And that's how I came up with the decision to get active on Twitter. I was never active before. Like I had a very dormant account. I had 160 followers. They're just friends and family. Um, and then that has started, grown a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's grown a bit. Exactly. Um, started getting more active. Started to tweet about stuff. You know, initially you're just trying stuff. I was tweeting stuff about personal development, accounting, etc. Um, and then I found, you know, instead of me trying to find a topic that I'm interested in tweeting about and then researching it, learning it, and then, you know, tweeting about it, why don't I just tweet about accounting and finance? I know a lot about this. I've spent, you know, almost a decade doing this in various capacities at different companies. Um, I feel like I can really break this down for people to understand in a very simple way such that it isn't intimidating. And, you know, I used to get offended sometimes when people say, oh, accounting is boring. It, it's actually not. It's actually quite interesting. You know, I'm just upset that somebody hasn't taught you accounting in a way that it's, you know, it, it seems interesting because it really is. It really is if you give it a chance. Right, right um, exactly. Can, can I share with you my pet theory for why um, most people are not able to understand accounting? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Curious to uh, so so you, you can tell me what you think of this theory. So my theory is that the first class in accounting, you learn about debits and credits. And at the end of that class, about 80%, uh, you've lost 80% of the room. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's this debits and credits that are responsible 
for this this why why so many people consider accounting to be so boring and counterintuitive to understand if you just replaced debits and credits with increase and decrease just change all the language in the accounting textbooks don't talk about debits and credits talk about increases and decreases accounting suddenly becomes demystified to to a whole lot of people so i'll i'll give you a simple example so when you when you debit cash it means you are increasing cash but when you debit a, a liability account uh, it it means you are actually decreasing that account and and so on so the word debit has different meanings in different contexts and uh, same with the word credit so there are essentially two rules to accounting the first rule is debit is the opposite of credit so if debiting cash increases cash then crediting cash will decrease cash that's the first rule debit and credit are opposites and the second rule is in any transaction the total debits should add up to the total credits uh, so all transactions are balanced in in that sense so if if you take a company like zoom for example and i i, I go and pay zoom uh, some some money every month say say i pay zoom 20 uh, th- this month now that that is for service that they will provide me over the next one month so they haven't actually given me anything i have given them 20 but over the next one month they will give me some service for that 20 so when i pay them the cash of course now zoom has 20 more cash than what it had before i paid them the cash so the cash at zoom has gone up by 20 but they have this liability which is to provide a service to me and that liability account has also gone up by 20 so that means uh, uh, they they call this something like unearned revenue or something like that that's the yeah. accounting terminology for it so unearned revenue the liability has also gone up uh, by by 20 so so you say debit cash and that means cash has increased uh, by 20 but that means uh, because debits have to be equal to total credits you have to credit unearned revenue by $20. So even though both have gone up by $20, cash has also gone up, unearned revenue has also gone up. One of them is a debit and the other one is a credit. And this is super confusing to a lot of people. And th- this is my pet theory. If you, if you just replace debit and credit by increase and decrease appropriately, of course, uh, then a lot more people in the world will understand accounting much better so what do you think of this theory no i like it it's actually it's really good it's really good because i'm i'm just i was just thinking as you were saying this when i tweet or i explain anything to one of my clients i never talk about debits and credits because that's not what you're there for you, you it's it, it, it that's your job as an accountant it's not their job to understand um the client or whoever it is that's trying to understand accounting what i more talk about is you know implications so is revenue going up is cash going up or your liabilities going up and it's very similar to what you just said increases and decreases the movements of some of the accounts as opposed to you know debiting debiting this or crediting crediting this um i totally agree it's it's actually yes i believe if you cuz it's almost like the stuff i tweet now is more about implications of certain decisions to financial statements and how the how the, what what this does to your business it's almost like that is the end result of accounting but that should be brought forward and thought as an introduction about financial statements and how they work and how they increase and how they're linked 
And then eventually you can go into like demystify that into like the building blocks, which are the debits and credits. Um, but I like that. If you were to replace it with increase and decrease, you'd probably get a lot more people interested. For sure. That's that's great. It's, it's great to have uh, your your pet theory endorsed <laughs> by some, yeah. some someone in the in the profession. Yeah, yeah I, I hope you don't get too much hate for this from fellow accountants. <laughs> no, no problem at all. It's good. It's good. I like it. I like it. And and uh, I I really like three three other uh, points that you mentioned in in your. Uh, uh, sort of story about how you came to be here. So so the first thing you said is, okay, you trained as an accountant, but then you started getting into capital markets. You started trying to find out how companies work, how to read balance sheets and uh, how investment banking works and, and so on. So you were engaged in the profession in that you maintained interest in a lot of adjacent fields other than your primary field, which is accounting. And I, I know many accountants and they, they have CPAs and all that, but they sort of confine themselves just to accounting. For example, they, they don't own any stocks and things like that. Even though mm-hmm. to an accountant, a, a set of financial statements should be easy to understand because they work with financial statements all day, but they are not investors. They don't invest uh, their their money and, and, and so on. Uh, so I, I, I love this idea that if you stay engaged and try to learn as much as possible about fields that are adjacent to your own core area of expertise, new opportunities open up and you start seeing connections that you did not see before. And this can be super valuable. That, that is the first thing I, I really like in your, uh, in your approach. And this, the second thing I liked is you, before you joined Apple, you went and studied their financial statements and you said, okay, look, this company has so much of cash on its balance sheet, even if the iPhone is destined to fail, uh, uh, they, they, they probably have enough to weather the storm and to reinvent themselves or whatever. And this is a super important point. Before somebody takes up a job at a company, these days there are all kinds of tech startups and they're all failing. Uh, so some of them are failing and, and some of them are, are going to be uh, immensely successful, but their valuations are all down across the board and things like that. So before you take up a job at a company, try to understand its economics, its financial statements, maybe its cash burn rate and things like that. So what, what kind of revenues do they have? Are these revenues likely to grow? Uh, what, what kind of assets do they have on their balance sheet? Is that Are those assets enough to make the company survive? So if the capital markets were to shut down tomorrow and the company loses all access to funding, new funding, can the assets in the balance sheet, uh, are they enough to carry the company over until it becomes profitable or finds some new line of uh, product development or something like that? Just understanding the financials of a business before you take up a job uh, from that company that is such such a such a great hack uh, that that a lot of people don't do they they are excited about the company's vision and things like that and they take up uh, a job they accept a job offer at a company but they've never actually gone and looked at their own company's financials and you know when when so much of your income um, a lot of people, a big part of their income comes from their primary job. And when so much of that income comes from one single source, uh, shouldn't you at least try and verify, 
or try and have a reasonable degree of confidence that this source, this company is going to exist in the next five years or so. So, so studying the financials and learning the basics of accounting can, can help you, even if you're not really interested in anything else, running a business or anything. If, even if you just want to make sure that this job that you have at this company is, is likely to be around in the next five years or, yeah. or something like that. And, and, and the third thing I really liked in your answer is you, you, you're so humble. You, you joined Apple um, and then the stock took off and your uh, shares are worth a lot more than what, uh, what they were when you joined. But you say, you know, luck has a large uh, part to play in this. This is not entirely because of your unique insights or anything like that. Luck mm-hmm. plays a big role. And that, that is true in so much of business and investing, the role of luck, when, when things go well, people uh, tend to assume that it's all because of their mm. skills. And when things go badly, they tend to blame it on luck. But luck always exists and it plays such a big role. And the more we learn to acknowledge the role played by luck, the, the more humble we'll be and possibly the, the more close to the truth we'll be as well. Yes, yes, I appreciate that. It's a good break- breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on the first point you made about um, accountants not investing in stocks and not really understanding financial statements, it's true. You know, I'll give you a personal anecdote. It, as I run my business, you know, a lot of accountants, there is this hierarchy of work you do. You know, bookkeeping is seen as very low value to accountants because, you know, they're like, bookkeeping is very simple. It's someone, you know, with a college, you know, very basic college degree can do. I'm an accountant. I'm a CPA. I work on a tax return. It's, you know, high, it's more brainy type of work. It requires a CPA. It's very more glamorous than, you know, what a bookkeeper does. Right. But, you know, whenever I look at an accountant and they tell me this or they give you this sort of vibe, you know, for example, usually the fee structure for some of these services work like this. If you're a CPA and you do a tax return for a company, usually you have a one-time fee that you bill your client for the tax return once a year because that's when you do the tax return. And let's say that's $10,000, okay? Now, I do the bookkeeping for this company. I usually do it every month. It's, you know, I'm always in touch with the business owners. They always need their bookkeeping done, etc. I charge them, let's say, $2,000 a month to do their bookkeeping. Right. Now, who makes more money per year from this client? You charge 10K, I charge 2,000 per month, so 24K comes to me. Right. You, may, you have the glory of saying, hey, I do a tax return, it's really sexy, it's glamorous, you know, I have a CPA. You make 10K, but I make 24K just doing bookkeeping. So, you know, again, it's like, if you were a good CPA, you would offer both. You would try and do both services. But some CPAs are like, no, 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 bookkeeping is too low level work. You know, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I just, I'm a tax return person. I do this as a CPA. This is the work I do. So it's like you're missing the whole way to run your business where you could be making more money doing this service or doing both, but you just want to focus on this one. And, you know, I, I don't know why <laughs> some, some accounts are like this. But yeah, that's... Uh, well, this is of... almost like a subscription offering. Correct. Right? You, and so, so we... we... We are all studying these days about about the power of uh, revenue that recurs every month and and things like that, as opposed to rec- revenue that recurs every year. And this is a great opportunity to to upsell uh, extra services to clients, maybe consultancy on top of 
just plain vanilla bookkeeping. You can talk to clients about their businesses, try to, and it also keeps you updated about what's going on with different kinds of businesses. If your client in, uh, in one particular business is facing supply chain constraints or whatever, you will see that on, on the books. And so it helps you stay abreast of events um, across the economy in, in some sense. And you can use that knowledge in, to, to help other clients. Maybe uh, you can use that knowledge in your own personal portfolio to inform your own business decisions, to inform your own investing decisions and so on. So there are so many uh, positive offshoots to offering um, all these services to clients. Correct. Correct. Exactly. You know, and you have the, the CPA that you see once a year, um, and your bookkeeper that you see every month, who really understands your business more? You know, the CPA can only, if he meet, is meeting you once a year, you know, his understanding of your business is likely going to be limited. Because let's be honest, he doesn't spend that much time with you. Right. Um, so there's that aspect as well, for sure. It's interesting. That's a little bit of inside baseball of how the accounting industry works. It's interesting. Definitely, definitely. Uh, so uh, t- touching more on this question of uh, operators uh, versus investors. Uh, so I, I, I want to talk about one thing that uh, investors can learn from business operators and one thing that operators can learn from investors um, because this is what Buffett said. He's a better investor because he's an operator and vice versa. Um, so so we, we were talking just before the call started and uh, we, we touched on this this idea that operators have to focus a lot of their time on things that can go wrong, uh, the risk that is there in the business. Whereas investors tend to focus more on the upside, the, the rewards. Uh, so one, one place where we saw this play out uh, in recent times is this whole idea of uh, su- supply chain logistics. So a lot of companies uh, have moved to what is called just-in-time supply chain management and so on. And the idea behind just-in-time is you don't keep too much inventory on hand. So uh, as far as possible, if if you're uh, Nike and you're manufacturing shoes or something like that, what you do is uh, you you have to manufacture the shoes and you have to get them to uh, markets all over the world. But you don't keep a whole lot of inventory. You try to make sure that the inventory lies more with your suppliers and things like that. You try to get as little inventory as possible and uh, manufacture your shoes and then try to uh, get a quick turnaround and get them. You build all the supply chain infrastructure so that uh, your uh, dependence on capital is as low as possible. So you don't use up too much capital uh, in inventory. Um, it's all always uh, being sold to customers and, and so on. The, the chain is managed very efficiently. Um, and investors love that when, when they see that a company has been able to reduce inventory and make its supply chain more efficient and so on. Uh, investors absolutely love that and they make the stock go up and things like that. And this all works great. But uh, what happens when a ship um, is stuck in the middle of the Suez Canal or something like that, and you can't get your inventory in time. A certain amount of fat in the system, a certain amount of excess inventory can help you weather these kinds of uh, unpredictable shocks. Uh, 
Uh, whereas if everything was just in time and you have something that is, uh, you, you have some supply chain shock because of COVID or because of uh, some ship being stuck somewhere or something like that, now you have to stop production at all your facilities because you don't have any raw materials to, to work with. So in, in that particular instance, uh, cutting everything down to the bare bones is actually not such a great decision from, uh, from the point of view of how fragile your business is to disruptions of, of any kind. So good business operators will focus on, on both, uh, not, not just uh, the, the capital requirements of the inventory, but also how fragile the whole supply chain is to various kinds of shocks around the world. And uh, so, so if, if you can talk about, um, you know, how operators view a business and how investors view a business and perhaps some things that investors can learn from operators, that, that'll be great. Yeah. You know, th- this is, uh, as we were discussing this before the show, it's, it's a tough question, right? Um, some of these answers that you give you know, you can make an argument for this. You can make an argument for the other side as well. Yes. Um, a lot of investors do indeed, like you said, look for efficiencies. Um, they want to see, you know, costs that are quite low, higher net income, higher EBITDA, higher profitability. That usually happens when you don't have a lot of fat in the system where you run very lean, mean, and very efficient. The other thing that a lot of investors look at, and I'm sure you know this, they tend to benchmark companies in the same industry. So let's say you're an operator of a company and you want a bit more fat, like you said, in your supply chain. Sometimes you might be punished by investors simply because you have a bit more fat than your competitor that does. So investors are like, well, you're not as efficient as your competitor is. Right. Now, yes, the operator usually says that, you know what, um, you don't understand the way our business typically works. We do have sometimes issues on our suppliers, etc. Sometimes having a little bit of fat or, you know, to a certain extent, even being becoming completely vertically integrated, whereby, you know, supply, you bring the entire supply chain onshore so it stays in the U.S. or in North America. Although that's more expensive in the short term, in the long term, it's the right decision because, Instead of missing um, customer orders and missing that revenue, you'd rather have predictability and rather not miss any type of sales to your customers because of a shortage in inventory. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a hard analysis to do. And I'm sure a lot of business owners as well um, have to do the cost benefit and be like, you know, how often do we have these supply chain disruptions? Um, as a result of these disruptions, how much revenue, how much, how many, how many sales are we lo- usually losing because of this? And then does it make sense, therefore, to bring supply onshore where we can control it more, where we, you know, set the pace as to how we get product? Because we don't want to miss a lot of these uh, potential sales and the revenue associated with those sales that we could get. Right, exactly. And when when you run a business, when you take care of the day-to-day operations of a of a business, all these things become so painfully evident to you every mm-hmm. single day that maybe investors who just read, uh, who just look at the balance sheet at the end of every quarter or something like that, they don't perhaps appreciate this to the same extent that an operator would. Yeah. 
you know, I'll give you a, uh, just an anecdote as well, because I worked at Apple. I do know this. And this isn't, you know, non-public information. It's very public. Tim Cook sometimes gets on the quarterly conference call and he usually says uh, sales were whatever it is. But he's like, you know, th- we had supply issues. Um, we couldn't get enough supply of a certain product like AirPods, iPad, whatever it is. So if you technically just step back and think about it, you know, Apple, for example, in but all the iPod, AirPods losing one of the pair or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they can't get enough supply from their, you know, suppliers like Foxconn or whoever it is. Um, they usually have a, a supply issues. The demand is still there. There is a, there's still demand. But Apple can't fulfill the demand because its suppliers, you know, have supply issues. So sometimes when you step back and you look at the company's revenue in 2021, they, I believe they did 368 billion in revenue, you know, 368 billion in revenue divided by 365 days a year. That's a billion dollars a day in sales that Apple does. That number could have been higher had they not had supply issues. That's like the really mind boggling thing about, you know, sometimes supply issues where he gets on a call and he says, casually, we had supply issues. You know, sometimes I feel like people don't appreciate that. Like the company's sales could have been even more than what how crazy it already is had they not had those supply issues. Um, right, exactly, exactly. And I, I think it's a little different for companies like Apple versus if, if you take a company like Starbucks, for example. Yeah. So if, if you take a company like Apple, say, um, if, if I'm trying to buy a Mac or something like that, and because of supply chain issues, I'm not I'm not able to buy the Mac right away. I may buy it next month or, or something like that. That that demand from me is, is still there. That is not lost revenue for a company like Apple. But if you take a company like Starbucks, let, let's say Starbucks also has supply chain issues. And because of that, they let's say they shut down a bunch of uh, Starbucks stores because they don't have coffee beans or whatever. Uh, so if I was going to get a coffee at Starbucks today, I'm, I'm not going to get two coffees tomorrow or something like that. Uh, that demand is just permanently lost for a, for a company like Starbucks, whereas it is not permanently lost for a company like Apple. True, true. It's a good. I mean, internally, Apple would say they're, they're going to go buy an Android laptop. Whatever <laughs> people have their, their things, right? But no, I agree. It, it is much more acute. The problem is much more acute for a company like Starbucks than it is for a company like Apple. Because, you know, if you don't have like the MacBook Pro, I could get the MacBook Air and I'm okay with that. But at Starbucks, you're right. I'm not going to buy two coffee cups tomorrow. That sale that was missed is completely lost, right? That's the demand that's completely gone. So again, bringing it back to our original discussion, then the company has to evaluate, okay, should we source coffee beans from Kenya? Or does it make more sense to, you know, have more of those beans being stored locally here in the U.S.? Or sourcing in areas that are, you know, less, um, where the supply is more secure, um, so definitely, definitely pros and cons, again, cost and benefit that a company needs to do. Exactly, exactly. And just as investors can learn from business operators, so, so many things like this supply chain management and inventory management and so on. Uh, the, the other side of the issue also holds true, which is that operators can learn to think like investors and can improve the results of their business as well. So uh, there are two things that I see a lot of operators, they don't quite appreciate. So one thing is a lot of small business operators I see, uh, they are profitable, their businesses are profitable, but they don't quite appreciate the importance of 
cash flows versus earnings. So I, I love to say this and I, I, I say this a hundred times on this podcast. I'll mm. say it once more, which is just because a company makes $1 of profits does not mean that there is $1 extra cash that the business can distribute to its owners. Uh, so, and, and a lot of business owners and operators, small business operators, they don't fully appreciate this point. That, I mean, the, the, their business is profitable and they are happy that their business is profitable, but they always seem to have cash flow problems and they are not quite able to make the connection between the two. Whereas to an investor uh, who reads cash flow statements, uh, th- this sort of thing is, is far clearer because uh, an investor is an owner and ultimately what they care about is how much cash can they take out of the business o- over a period of time, right? Uh, so so th- this is something that I think more operators can learn from investors. Is, is this your experience as well uh, when you advise small businesses? Yeah, 100%. You know, a lot of people say, um, oh, I made $60,000, but my bank account, it still has 20000 Like, where did the money go? You know? And when, I, when a business owner is asking you this question, that is exactly what they're asking. They're asking, why are my earnings this? Why is my cash balance this? Where did the money go? Like, why is there a difference between the profit I'm reporting and the cash in my bank account? And that usually, as you know, is usually linked. Investors can see the link between these two things by looking at the cash flow statement, which really sort of links net income down to the cash sitting in your bank account. Um, Very critical distinction, you know, very critical distinction. But very easy to confuse if, again, if you're a person that doesn't really understand accounting or have been told that accounting is too complicated, when you see the difference between these two things, it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating as a business owner because you're like, well, why the hell my profit 60K? Like, why is this? And this, you know, when when you report a profit of $60,000, that's what you're paying tax on. That's, uh, you know, what you're sort of being evaluated on, et cetera, et cetera. So... The, the tax authorities really ta- pay, they sort of take your profit and charge you tax on that. And if, then if you have less cash, like let's say you have 20K, you're always thinking, well, why am I paying so much tax? Like this profit is, doesn't even exist. It's like phony. It's, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really exist. So you as an advisor, as a CPA, sometimes have to explain to the, to the business owner why there is the difference, why there is this mismatch, why the IRS or whoever looks at it this way, et cetera, et cetera. So... Very critical distinction that a lot of small business owners sometimes confuse, uh, but it's definitely important. Exactly. And it also speaks to the, the quality of a business's earnings. So if, if you're too lenient with your suppliers or your customers, you, you let your customers pay, uh, pay for something much later than when you deliver it to them. Or um, if, if you're dealing with suppliers, if, if you uh, have to pay your suppliers before uh, you 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 get cash from your customers. Things like that can create uh, ca- cash flow problems. And good businesses, wonderful businesses, um, typically what happens is every dollar of earnings translates to one dollar of cash. And in some businesses, it's even better than that because uh, they they collect revenue upfront. So um, a, a dollar of um, a dollar of profits um, translates to more than $1 of cash flows. And uh, that, that I think is a key marker for what distinguishes a wonderful business from a 
not so wonderful business how much of the earnings actually translate to actual cash uh, mm-hmm. and th- this is a key metric of business quality yeah yeah agreed agreed no it's a very very important metric to look at and to measure as well um and you know like a lot of business owners sometimes um they struggle with things like okay like how do i solve this cash flow problem i have and sometimes it's as simple as having a conversation with your customers and telling them look we're going to bill you on the first of the month and then that's when you pay as cash so that you know a business owner can therefore get the cash up front and they can go ahead and pay their own bills whether it's salaries to their employees paying their suppliers etc etc or sometimes you know you have a lot of bis- small business owners they will work on you know different projects whatever it is they're a designer they're an architect whatever it is you know let's say a project takes 4 to 5 months to do right um you start the project let's say it will take you 5 months to do right you're incurring expenses as you're working on this project and you're having to pay for them and then you're telling your client that no 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 I'll bill you after 5 months that's usually like the 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 prime way to create cash flow problems Right. because you as a business owner are paying for expenses on your credit card to fulfill this job but your client is going to pay you at the end of the 5 months and that's usually easily resolved you can resolve this quite easily you just ask your client for a retainer a deposit or you bill them intermittently like every after 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 every month you send them a bill stuff like that so usually a lot of business again you know they they struggle with this issue because they're like oh well my client will pay when the job is done but that's not really the optimal decision because you are going to have to pay for a lot of these these expenses out of your own pocket when right, you're exactly. just paid paid using the the customer's money right and that that is something that investors are very cognizant of because when when you have to put up your own capital uh, to mm. do things uh, as opposed to if you can get capital from other sources like suppliers and customers and so on uh, if you're going to make the same amount of money but you have to put up a lot of the capital then the return on capital is now lower uh, and and investors are very, very cognizant of that uh, and may, maybe business owners uh, can learn a thing or two from investors in in that respect yeah agreed 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 because you know the, the business owner is always uh, they they have a soft spot for their customer they're like oh, it's my customer let me treat them well like, they want to pay at the end sure they want to pay at the end, at the end but it's not the most optimal decision you know although i understand you're treating your customer well but it's not the most optimal the decision you're making for your business for yourself you know for your stress to manage your liabilities all of that stuff um so definitely something to learn from investors right yeah exactly so uh we we've been talking for uh, for about i think in um 40 minutes or 45 minutes uh, on on the podcast now so let's uh, take some questions from callers if if they have any so do do, do we have any questions uh, for for either me or ali now is a great chance okay so we we have casey uh, he's actually a regular caller on the show nice Yeah, hi Tim K. Hi uh hey. Hi Ali. Uh hey. question for either of you. Um so in accounting context, capitalization is the process of recording the total cost of acquiring an asset that has a useful life of more than one accounting period. Um so why does a retailer like TJ Maxx or any retailer for that matter capitalize their operating leases? 
can list them as assets even though they don't own the property themselves. Uh, that, that's a question for the accountant here. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll let Ali take that. I, I, I knew you were going to throw it at me. You know, I, I have to review lease accounting on this. Um, I don't know it off the top of my head. But what I would tell you is sometimes accounting rules stipulate the way something should be recorded because they want something to be matched, you know, uh, according to the revenues. Usually the thing about leases and even other assets, what the, what the reasoning behind this is, if a lease is signed for, let's say, 10 years, what mm-hmm. usually, what usually uh, accounting rules st- stipulate for you to do is usually you capitalize this because it's kind of like a, something you've signed and it's kind of like an agreement you've entered into. Although you'll pay it over 10 years, it should still be recognized somewhere because it's contractually the company has entered into a contract. And that should be recognized either on usually on your balance sheet somewhere. It's very similar to the way assets. It's kind of kind of the same as the way assets are recognized. You know, although I buy a car for my business and the cash has gone out the door, if I pay, buy a car for $50,000, I've paid the car. I own it. It's completely mine. The cash is gone. Um, I use it for my business. But accounting rules stay that no, 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 although the cash has gone out, this car will last you, whatever it is, the depreciation rules say, this car will last you on average for five years. Therefore, you will recognize that the benefit of this car that you have over a five-year period, as opposed to just expensing it when you actually purchased it. Operating lease is very much the same. You've contractually entered into a lease, the benefit of which you will get over a 10-year period or whatever it is, and therefore, you recognize it over that time period. So I hope that helps. So you're only expensing, so if it's a 10-year lease on your expenses, on your income statement, it would only show 12 months of the expenses for the first year. It wouldn't show, obviously, the remaining nine years. So each year, it would show one year's worth of expense on the income statement. Correct. Correct. That's correct. That's correct. When it comes to uh, depreciation, um, I, I believe I read I read online that uh, straight line depreciation is most common. Um, is is there any like studies, or is it just basically pretty straightforward that most public companies use straight line depreciation methods versus the other methods? I, I know it obviously depends, but um, are there any stats that you're aware of that uh, they say X amount of public companies will use straight line depreciation seventy percent of the time and declining balance or some of the years X percent of the time? Um, there's no stat that I'm aware of, but usually a lot of public companies stick to straight line because it's simply much smoother for a lot of their earnings. Because if you think about the declining balance, if you are a very capital intensive company, you think about like Caterpillar or somebody that, you know, buys a lot of equipment, your earnings would have, if you're using declining balance, every time you buy a lot of equipment, that first year when you actually buy the equipment, your earnings will look very low. But it's, you know, it's just an, it's a stupid accounting depreciation rule you're using because you're using the declining balance. Generally, companies don't like that because, you know, a lot of investors like to see very predictable earning patterns and sort of smooth uh, earning patterns. So a lot of publicly traded companies generally just use straight line. It's easier for people to understand. Um, investors aren't asking you questions about why your, your earnings are low, et cetera, et cetera. It's very smooth. So... A lot of public companies, I'd say, you know, off the top of my head, I can't even think of one company that uses declining balance. But of course, for tax purposes, a lot of companies use declining balance because it's advantageous. You're taking a lot of depreciation in a certain year. 
your income is much lower, therefore you pay lower tax. So for tax purposes, a lot of people would definitely use declining balance, but publicly traded companies, straight line. Thanks. Right. And the last question real quick. Uh, oh, with, stop, with your stop, business... Stop. Oh, thanks, Tinke. Uh, with your business, or just just a, a pure guess yourself, out of uh, the experience of working with small business owners, between the three financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statements, which one would you say gives the most difficulty to, to the business owners, in your opinion? I'd say a lot of people, a lot of business owners don't even know about the cash flow statements. So that's one that's definitely, definitely gives a lot of difficulty for a lot of business owners. Uh, the second most difficult is usually the balance sheet as well. A lot of business owners have trouble understanding this whole concept that we just discussed about capitalization. And I'll give you a brief example. A lot of business owners that have inventory sometimes, um, and a lot of my e-commerce clients ask me this as well. They're like, I just bought inventory, $100,000. I paid for it. And I tell them, okay, that's great. Well, then all of this inventory, we're going to capitalize on your balance sheet. They're like, well, why are we capitalizing this? The money is already gone. I've paid for this. Like, it's already spent. Can we just expense it? And no, 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 that's not how accounting rules work. You can't just expense inventory just because you paid for it. You expense inventory as you sell it, as you sell it throughout the year. So that, again, a lot of business owners struggle with because, again, it's quite, and it's understandable why people struggle with it because they've, to them, they've already paid the cash. As far as they know, this is an expense. Like, the money is gone. You know, it's completely, they paid for it. But for accounting rules, that's not the case. You have to actually capitalize the inventory on your balance sheet and then slowly expense it as you make your, um, as you sell it. So that's, again, the balance sheet, I'd say, is the second most statement where people really sort of struggle to understand. Um, Usually the income statement, generally people understand what it's supposed to show. It's supposed to show profit, so generally people know what that is. Sure. All right. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great points, Ali. So uh, there's just one, uh, one or two things I wanted to add here. Uh, so the, the question about uh, operating leases. So yes, when, when a company makes a commitment, when, when it signs a long-term lease with a landlord or something like that, saying, um, let, let's say uh, it's, it's 100K per year for the next 10 years or something like that. Now, when, when a company makes a contractual uh, agreement like this, saying that it, it is going to pay out this sum, that is something like a liability for the company. So it, it goes on the liability side. But then in, in return for making this commitment, uh, the company gets to use an asset, uh, which is uh, the, the building that uh, it is leased from the landlord or something like that. And so there is something called a right of use asset that goes on the on the asset side of the balance sheet. So the, the asset side gets a right of use asset, the liability side gets a, uh, uh, this, this uh, uh, operating lease liability. And so now uh, the, the asset side and the liability side approximately uh, can cancel each other out. And so this, this is uh, how, how the accounting works. And Usually, the the rationale that is given for why are we doing this, why are we adding an asset and an approximately equal liability to the to the balance sheet, uh, it's simply because we want to make different businesses comparable uh, to each other. So, what the accountants want to do is, let's say you have one business, uh, that business is going to just uh, take a loan and then buy this building outright, and then you have the second business. It's not going to take a loan. 
it's going to sign a lease and then um, over, over the long term, over, over 10 years or something like that, it's going to sign this lease and then uh, it, it's going to treat the, the rental expense uh, that it pays each year as something like an operating expense. Now, uh, these may be identical businesses, but just because one business has decided to buy the property and the second business has decided to lease the property, the, uh, the accounting statements, the financial statements of the two businesses may look different from each other. And if we want to compare these two businesses, we have to sort of take each business's financial statements and make some adjustments uh, to those financial statements so we can compare these two businesses. And accountants, uh, generally what they say is, uh, we want to make it easier for you to compare these two businesses. And that's why we are adding an asset and a liability. Uh, now, does this actually work? I don't know. I have never compared two businesses like this. I usually, um, if, if the asset and the liability are approximately equal to each other in all my calculations for how a business is going to do and things like that, I, I just take out both of them. Uh, but but uh, th this is the rule of thumb that I follow as an investor. But if, if the two amounts are not equal to each other, approximately, I don't really know what to do. I will probably throw that company in my too hard pile and say, okay, yeah. I'm not going anywhere near this company because I don't understand the financial statements. Yeah, no, it's a good point. It's a good point. Well, very well explained as well. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so let's take the next caller. Uh, his name is uh, Ricardo, and he, he's also a regular caller on the show. Hello, are you hearing well, me? Yes. Um, once again, thanks for having me on your program, Thank you. Um, good afternoon to your guests and, and listeners also. Um, as usual, you have very great guests on your program. I don't know how you're able to access those wonderful people, but I am very grateful. I'd just like to make a comment that on, on what you said earlier about um, the whole thing about um, accounting and debit and credit. I did accounts just at O level, if you understand um, the British O level, that's high school. And okay. that was the most confusing they, part. They taught you accounting in high school? Yes. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Well, I, that, I this is, any this accounting is, in high school. This is O level, you know. So okay. this is, if you're familiar with the British O level, A level, um, system that they had um, in the, I mean, I'm calling from the West Indies, Jamaica. So that's, we did basic accounting at O level, or, okay. or sh I should I say high school. Um, and that was the most confusing part, the debit credit, you know, we are taught mm -hmm. that the, the, the debit is a good thing, the credit is bad. And then later on, now you understand when a company carrying debit, debit you know, you, you have to think about it. As someone who is not an accountant, you have to really um, kind of go back to first principle to understand what this is. So I agree with you fully that, you know, that whole initial introduction to accounts um, with this deb and debit credit, you know, cause a lot of confusion with, with, with students. Um, so I agree with your point. The how it's taught can turn off a lot of persons 
um, from following up in accounts later on. Now, my other question, I regret not doing I, I, accounts. People who agree with me on this call, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my regret is not doing accounting further. I, 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 I'm in the medical field, so it's program like this, like your program, that I really get a lot of information. My question to probably you or your guests is accountants. I, I, I always wonder why accountants, all accountants are not millionaires. They understand the numbers. They understand the books, the accounting statements, the income statements. The, you know, you went through all three. I, being a novice now, would say, boy, if I have all this knowledge and I can read the books, I would be instant millionaire because, you know, I can wrap my head around the numbers and so on. So always... Well, mathematicians can also wrap their heads around numbers. <laughs> they, they are not millionaires either, most of them. <laughs> So, um, so I am I, I am benefiting from your program, and I just like to say thanks and keep up the wonderful work, and also thanks to your guests for for being here today. Thank you. Absolutely. So, so <laughs> Ali, why, why are accountants not millionaires? Not rich. <laughs> I ask myself the same thing every day. No, you know, I I'd, I'd say it's uh, the point that you made. Um, which was when you were talking about, you know, accountants, sometimes they don't invest in stocks. They don't tend to use their knowledge in a very practical way. It's kind of like the accountant simply gets stuck in his uh, debits and credits type of world and doing the tax return and then doesn't use his knowledge to, you know, do analysis type of work and figure out how he can use his knowledge to generate income in some way. And, you know, the reason I, I was going over my story about how I switched from accounting into finance and I thought it was sexier, it was more interesting. The one thing that really pissed me off when I was, you know, um, looking for jobs and applying, etc. You know, I was going into these interviews. If anybody knows how finance interviews are, they tend to be very technical, investment banking, etc. They tend to ask you accounting questions, financial modeling questions. You as an accountant likely know financial statements better than any investment banker could. Like you will literally understand what is built up into some of these accounts. Um, and it used to piss me off that, you know, you as an accountant get paid this, finance professionals get paid that. And you're like, dude, I probably understand this stuff better than you do. Yet for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. Accountants just struggle making that transition from don't just record this transaction. Tell me what it's what it means. What does this mean for my business? And sometimes that's lost on accountants. You know, they're they're very much making sure that the statements are presented properly, everything is accurately recorded, and that's great. That's your job as an accountant. That's what you get paid for. But you know, once you and I have have this aspect as well, because I guess we look at things as investors. It's like. Okay, these are your financial statements. So what what does this mean? You made 60 billion. So what, what does this mean? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this better than last year? How are your competitors doing? These, these are the questions that, you know, then unlock you to be able to generate wealth. And I feel like accountants just get, they don't get to that part. They just either miss it or they're like, you know, this is enough work. I've prepared the financial statements. This is all I had to do. And they just stop. Um, so it's making that transition to like, Okay, you've done this. Well, okay, what does this mean? Why is it like this? You know, a lot of people just don't make that transition. Absolutely, I I, I love this. So, um, in in the the seven habits of highly effective people, 
uh, this this wonderful book one of the key points is you have to be proactive and stay engaged so you, you shouldn't just treat your accounting job as as a 9 to 5 job you, uh, so from 9 am to 5 pm you you worry about tax returns and depreciation and all that mm-hmm. but then after that you turn it off and you come home and you you never apply that knowledge in your personal life uh, that, that that is generally not a good good recipe so if if you're thinking about these things and if you can uh, you have specialized knowledge because of your job as an accountant that most people don't understand and you you can really put that knowledge to use um in investing or in identifying wonderful businesses and buying them at reasonable prices and and things like that but if you don't do any of that that's on you Uh, so uh, yeah. that that may be one one reason why accountants aren't millionaires and i have also <laughs> observed this exact same thing i i have some cpa friends and they don't really invest at all and i've never understood why this is the case because you have so much of knowledge that you can just put to use very easily i had to learn all these things uh, from from the stupid books that accountants have written <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, anyway but, but but there are some, some things that um, you know that, that are counterintuitive uh, but that tend to stay that way for a long time uh, so it it makes perfect sense that accountants would also be engaged in as investors but that is rarely the case and um, I, i don't know why this is the case but this this is the state of the world and i, I think it's likely to stay that way yeah unfortunately unfortunately right uh, so let's take the the next caller the next caller uh, goes by shine hey tnk and hey ali uh, thanks for taking my call uh, can you guys uh, talk more uh, more on the course that you're going to offer is that more tailored towards business or individual investors like us uh, and even for individual investors at least i tend to more focus on index investing and if i am an index investor should i learn all this thank you uh, right that, that's a great question um, so um, not not all details about the course are finalized we are still working through what we should put in the course and what we shouldn't put in the course so we we want to make it very engaging and we don't want to take up you know like one semester of your time or some 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 large amount of your time like that so in a in a short amount of time say uh, 10 hours or 12 hours uh, that you spend on the course you should be able to walk away with uh, a fairly deep knowledge of how businesses work how accounting works um, how to read financial statements and if if i give you the financial statements of a business how do you look at them and come to a conclusion whether this is a good business or not a good business and and so on um so we are targeting this course at two groups so the first group is beginning investors so a lot of people uh, in the last two years they have entered the stock market and bought stocks for the first time in their lives and they may not understand all the nuances of how businesses work and so on and ultimately as we know uh there is a very deep connection between the returns a business earns on its capital and uh the return an investor earns by owning the stock of a business over a long period of time these two 
there is a very strong connection between the two. And this connection becomes apparent only when you sort of understand how businesses work at a very fundamental level. And so we want to help investors reach that level of understanding. At the same time, we also want to help small business owners. As Ali said, uh, there are lots of misconceptions about um, uh, running a business. So if, if I have $60,000 of profits, why do I have only $20,000 of cash in my bank account? So small business owners, uh, we want to help them to think more like investors, uh, to study the cash flow statement, to understand the economics of their business. So a lot, lot of people, they get into business uh, because they have a passion in, in life. So if, if someone is passionate about uh, Mexican food or something like that, they, they may start a taco place sim- simply because they are passionate about providing good Mexican food to, to people. Uh, but they don't really, uh, they may not really understand uh, financials and cash flow statements and inventory and, and, and things like that. Uh, so running a business requires all this as well. And so we want to uh, advise small business owners on how to take better financial decisions with their business by looking at their business through the lens of an investor. So broadly speaking, this is what we want to do. As for index investing, if you're just going to buy into an index fund uh, passively over, over a long period of time, uh, you probably don't need to understand at a very deep level why, uh, how, how businesses work and, and things like that. So this, this course may not, may not be for you. But if you're interested in sort of um, why does passive investing even work? Why, why do index funds, why uh, does dollar cost averaging into an index fund? Uh, how, how has it produced such great results? Uh, so that has to do with uh, the productivity of American business. Or if you're buying the S&P 500, it's American business. So over the years, how has this economic engine sort of worked? So how businesses take capital and how they return, uh, earn a return on that capital, how they're able to reinvest that capital back into themselves and earn a return on that capital, how compounding works inside of a business. If you're curious to know why passive investing has been such a great strategy over so many years, then this course will give you insights on that. Uh, so with, with that, I'll, I'll let uh, Ali um, also share his take on, on, on our course. Yeah, you know, even if you're an index investor, I'd say at a very, very basic level, two things. Number one, it's the point that uh, 10K made about, you know, just your career. And I don't know what you do for a job, for example. But let's say you're going to work at a company. You know, you want to know if you're going to work there for a number of years and they're going to give you a pension, etc. Just how well that company is doing, because that is important information for you, because that's your source of income, your salary, your future you don't want to work at a company that eventually, you know, is not going to be around or is going to be disrupted by whatever, et cetera, et cetera. So it's usually very good understanding for you to have to just know, you know, if I take an employment at a company or if I'm thinking of switching careers, whatever employer I have, will they be around? Will they, am I making a right decision or am I going to be joining like a sinking ship, if you will? Um, so that's point number one at a very practical level. Number two, I would say, you know, there's a lot of personal finance knowledge is um, very easily accessible now because of the Internet, on YouTube, on Twitter, whatever it is. But I'd say the, the knowledge that we're providing, which is more business oriented and less to do with your personal finances and your personal budgeting, 
is also fundamental for you to learn as a person that, you know, just goes through their career and their life. You need, I feel, everybody needs to kind of understand how a business works because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we are all sort of entrepreneurs and, and investors in our own careers and our own life. So it's kind of sometimes nice to understand, well, how does a business basically work? Like how does the, the economic engine and the money flows in a particular business work just at a very practical and fundamental level? Um, although you understand, you know, the budget for you personally as an individual, the budget of how a company works is very similar but unique in its own way. So it's a nice sort of understanding for everybody to have um, just at a very basic level. Uh, absolutely. That, that is such a great point. So well, once you understand how businesses work, uh, you, you never look at the world the, the same way again. Uh, so in, in your daily life, you interact with so many different businesses. Um, you, 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 for example, I, I, um, I'm a Geico subscriber. So I, I, uh, I get my car insurance from Geico. And when I pay my Geico bill, I think about the characteristics of this business. When I go to Starbucks or when I go to Walmart, uh, how, how is Starbucks as a business different from Walmart? What happens when I give Starbucks my money? What happens when I give Walmart my money? For example, when I go to Starbucks, I pay through my Starbucks cart. I've already preloaded money into that cart. So Starbucks has use of that money, right? But when I go to Walmart, uh, I usually don't pay with a Walmart gift card. I just use my credit card. So Walmart gets money only when I buy something from them. Whereas Starbucks gets money maybe a month before I actually buy anything from them. So look at these two businesses. They have two different economic characteristics. And so um, as you go through life, just learning how different businesses work and how their financials work can give you so many new perspectives on, on, on life in general and how capitalism works and things like that. It can improve your understanding of the world. Uh, as a whole and from time to time you may you may come across opportunities where you can take that understanding of businesses and apply it your own to your own personal life like uh, as ali said to decide whether to join a particular company or not or uh, to, uh, to, uh, to to decide whether to invest in a particular business or not if you, if you see a chain of stores that's becoming very popular in your local area or mall or whatever Peter Lynch used to do this. He, he would say, uh, I, I just go to the mall and uh, I see uh, where my wife and uh, daughters want to go and spend their money. And then I go and analyze the financials of that company. And uh, I found a lot of great investments that way. So as you go about life, interacting with lots of businesses, from time to time, you come across great businesses that Wall Street doesn't know about or doesn't yet fully appreciate but you can appreciate that as an individual because you interact with those businesses. And if you understand how these businesses work and how their financials work, you can spot opportunities years ahead of uh, Wall Street before something becomes a hundred bagger or something like that. And a single investment like that can completely change your life. It can allow you to build enormous amounts of wealth. Uh, so so th this course will help you uh, I'm not saying it'll help you find a hundred bagger or something like that, but it'll give you the kind of understanding uh, that, that you need uh, to, to be able to tell whether a business is a wonderful business or not. And who knows, maybe that knowledge will come in useful someday. I like the, the point, sorry, sorry, I like the point that uh, 10K just made. 
you know, at the end of the day, whenever a business makes a decision, whether it's Apple raising their prices, etc., a lot of the, these decisions that companies make, they affect you as a customer as well, because you buy their products, you interact with them in a certain way, etc. So sometimes it's just nice to know, you know, if my phone bill then went up, well, why did it go up? Is it because, you know, the company is raising like employee salaries, so therefore they're passing on the cost to my bill now? Uh, is it because of inflation, as we're sort of experiencing right now, or higher gas prices? It helps you understand what's happening to you, around you, a bit better. Hey, guys, uh, thank you very much. You have sold me on this. Uh, one more question. Should we be uh, participating live on this, or can we watch it or record it? Or what's your game plan here? On your uh, platform? So I'm... I'm we are going to have some live sessions, but the idea is that um, not, not all people may be able to join the live sessions because they live in different parts of the world and they have other things to do and, and so on. And so uh, I think if you're not able to join a live session, uh, the plan is definitely to make a, a recording of the session available to you uh, so that you can uh, so, sort of look at that recording. Um, ideally, you would probably get more out of the course if you participated in the live session. But if you're not able to, um, you, you can look at the recording and it will be available to you. We, we, we are not exactly sure whether it will be uh, because of the provider that we are using we, or that we plan to use. We are not sure if that recording will be available in perpetuity or uh, will it be available for six months and then be taken down or something like that. These are details that we still have to figure out. Uh, but definitely the plan is to have both a recording and a live session, but we want to encourage more people to participate in the live sessions. Thanks again and good luck to both of you in, in this endeavor. Oh, thank you so much. Much appreciated. Uh, so the next caller is, is Vinod. Vinod is also a regular caller on the show. Hi, hi Tanke. Hi, Heli. Hey. Hi. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, one is on the uh, your accounting uh, experience. Based on your accounting experience, how do you see? Uh, how do you judge the management quality? Uh, simply putting, like, uh, how do you use this quantitative uh, metrics to measure the qualitative aspects of the business? And uh, how do you? Because some of the established brands, uh, that competitive advantage is it's, it's already known. But some of the businesses yet to establish their branding and also market share. How do you make use of your accounting knowledge based on your experience to judge the management quality and also the competitive advantage of the business for the uh, uh, coming uh, years? And the second question is uh, on your, um, since you touched upon <laughs> Peter Lynch in the previous question, so all math we need is about. Uh, Quote trade. I think he, that's what written in one of the quote uh, from Peter Lynch. As an investor, um, understanding the income statement, balance sheets, and also the cash flow, uh, how much accounting knowledge we would need uh, to select the businesses for uh, potential investments and also get uh, better returns than the index. Thank you. Uh, sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll just. Uh talk briefly and then let Ali talk more about um, uh, th these questions. So, so the first question is how, how do you use your accounting knowledge 
to tell whether management is doing a good job or not. So management has two, two main jobs in a business. So the first thing is to run the business in a sensible way, in a way that makes financial sense. And the second thing is to allocate capital. So when a business uh, gets, uh, ma- makes a profit or has some cash, raises capital or something like that, it is the management's job to put the capital to good use. So uh, they may want to, they, they have a lot of options. So one, one thing to do is uh, just let the cash pile up on the balance sheet waiting for a future opportunity. Or they could go out and buy a competitor or they could advertise on Facebook and get customers or they could uh, simply reinvest into their business to build a new factory or to establish a new line of business or something like that. Or they could acquire some other adjacent company in their, uh, uh, that does a slightly adjacent business to what they're doing to expand their capabilities, things like that. So, um, or, or they could uh, simply return the capital back to owners through dividends, buybacks, and, and so on. They could pay down debt. So you can do a large number of things with capital. And what management chooses to do with the capital um, is of paramount importance. They can either add a tremendous amount of value to a business, or they can destroy a tremendous amount of value just through their capital allocation decisions. And so um, when management makes a decision to allocate capital, say Starbucks decides to, Starbucks management, they they decide to go and uh, invest a lot of money into opening new stores in China and so on. Now, if those stores have good unit economics and things like that, that will show up in the financial statements. So if you can read financial statements and if you understand accounting, you can tell whether this is a management that is making good capital allocation decisions or are they just blowing up capital on senseless acquisitions and things like that? Because these will show up on the financial statements. Um, now, it's not always possible to look at a financial statement and uh, be a judge of management quality from that. But the financial statements are a great starting point to understand whether uh, the business is, uh, is, a, is a good long-term hold uh, for your portfolio. Um, so so I'll, I'll let uh, Ali also shared his uh, perspective on this. Yeah, so the first question just on uh, management, it's an interesting question for sure. Um, when I look at this, I'd say I look for two key things. Number one is um, in order to evaluate how good management is of a particular company, it helps if you zoom out and compare that company to its competition or its companies in the same industry. Because it's hard to make this decision in a vacuum because you could look at, you know, very good results of a company, but there could be another company that's doing even better um, because let's say the entire market of that industry is growing. So it's hard for you to just look at the company on its own and then make a very objective assessment of how good that management is. Sometimes what you have to do is, again, that analysis type work that I was talking about where you zoom out. And then you look at this company, you look at this competition, see which one is doing better. And that might give you some insight as to how good uh, management is of one company versus another. The other point I was going to make is just the second sort of good good thing about management as well is you kind of have to look at consistency of results. So how good are they just delivering results? And how good, I'd say, especially in today's world, they are at being able to pivot and change you know, one, one of the investments that Buffett has made was uh, Coca-Cola, I believe. 
And, you know, you just look at Coke um, just through time. It's quite interesting. This was a company that created a, a soft drink beverage um, that's, you know, not very healthy for you today. But it's interesting how the company was able to make that complete pivot where it's like still... Originally, the formula included cocaine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it makes a soft drink with you know, cocaine, takes that out. It's making a normal soft drink. And now if you look at the company, it's completely also pivoted towards like drinks that are much more healthy, oriented towards the sports market, etc. That to me says that, you know, management here is quite competent and quite good. They're able to, you know, steer the ship very carefully and quite intelligently to be able to adapt to how the world is changing. And that to me says this is a lasting business because the management there or the company there is able to adapt. Um, and stay consistent while delivering good results, etc. So I'd say those two things, definitely important things to look at when you're looking at uh, at management. Um, and I think your your second question, just about um, understanding of accounting when you're looking at financial statements as an investor, etc. I'd say you know, like like 10K touched upon, you don't need to understand you know the minutia of the debits and credits. You don't need to understand that. But I think what you do need to understand is, you know, how are various elements of a particular um, set of financial statements, what do they mean and what are the implications? Like, let's say if you have a big uh, deferred liability, what does this mean? Is it really a liability or is this just future revenues that you have? If you have, uh, you know, a high capex, so you, spend, you buy a lot of equipment, etc. Is this good or is this not so good? Um, these are really the questions that you as an investors need to ask you as an investor need to ask and be able to understand in order to make good investment decisions. It's not really the the minutiae of the debits and credits. It's more understanding the statements and what the different components mean. Uh, right, exactly. I, I totally agree with uh, Ali on that. You you don't have to know what a debit is or a credit is uh, to be able to understand financial statements and, uh, interpret them to tell you whether the business is doing well or not, whether it's a wonderful business or uh, not a wonderful business. Um, and w one more thing I want to add on the management uh, question is, uh, it's also vitally important to understand, uh, the incentives of management and how management is compensating themselves. So unfortunately we live in a world where, uh, some, Companies have uh, management that seems to look at the company as their own personal piggy bank. So uh, they award themselves huge amount of executive compensation each year. Uh, they give themselves enormous amounts of uh, RSUs and things like that, diluting existing shareholders. And if, if you know how to read financial statements, uh, these things will show up on the financial statements and the notes to the financial statements. So it's very important to understand whether management's uh, actions are aligned with shareholders' interests or not. Or, or not. And uh, the second thing is to understand the incentives of management. How is management actually being compensated? So um, is it just based on earnings per share? So if earnings per share goes up, uh, does the management uh, get to make more money? Uh, well, if that is the case, uh, then uh, that, that may be a red flag because you can make earnings per share go up in any number of ways. One, one way to do it is to just buy back a lot of shares. Um, even if it makes no sense to buy back shares because they are trading at a very high level, if you are compensated based on earnings per share, 
and you have a billion dollars at your disposal which you can use to buy go to the market and buy back shares you can increase earnings per share that way it may be a terrible decision for uh, investors minority shareholders but it's a great decision for you as the uh, ceo or whatever because you will see a higher compensation out of it so it's important to understand uh, the incentives of a management team how they are compensated and uh, th- these things are included in the proxy statements that public companies disclose and so on so um, an understanding of incentives along with an understanding of financial statements can really help you tell whether uh, management is aligned with uh, minority shareholders like us or not great points thank you sure uh, so so the next caller is uh, uh, ricardo hello hello yes um i would just like to add two points thank you sure um i was watching a youtube video on warren buffett investment investment in high inflation environment like now and one uh, in the video he mentioned three points one companies with ability to increase their price for example in the video he the, i think they mentioned iphone can increase their price easily and the second point he the was mentioned was companies that can increase the volume of sale for example facebook and ads but the third most third point that warren buffett mentioned i think it's in his 1979 shareholder letter is that you should try to invest in yourself so that's why i'm excited about hearing about this course which is um probably at my level to start which is basic but i would add something else to that which is that i have two kids and my son and daughter have actually started the, the knowledge i get from reading and listening to your program i try to break it down in simpler terms that they can understand and even my son at his young age has been buying his stocks for a year now if we go to the supermarket he picks up only company stuff that he invests in for example he's interested in foods so that company would be in the trolley so he has a big advantage of me which is time because he's so young and he has really already started for a year now um buying things that he like so uh it, that's my little comment here that you know investment in yourself is one of the best things you can do and also by extension extending this knowledge to your family my wife not the type that would go and read these technical books and listen to investment program but in the car she listen to what i have to say and if i i'm able to break it down you know she even have her little investment account that she does also um who, who controls the radio in the car you or your wife um she control it okay <laughs> <laughs> but, but but the point is that um you know investment in itself can extend by extension to your family and the whole generation will you know if you know something happened to you they are able to continue what you have put aside for the family so i'm excited about hearing about your 
course. Thank you. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Yes, on, on the point about inflation, yes, we are all worried about inflation. And um, uh, so, so previously, there used to be something called the Fed put. So what the Fed put means is uh, if something happens uh, to the markets, if something bad happens to the markets, the Fed can always play around with interest rates and then get the market back up. So if you, if you buy a stock for $100, say, and if the stock ever goes to 95, you believe that the Fed will step in and do something and then make the stock go back uh, to, to 100. It can, it can never fall below 95. If you believe that the Fed will make sure that the stock never goes below 95 or whatever, then uh, in essence, what you have is when you buy the stock, you get a free put option. You, you get the right to sell the stock at $95. So this was called the Fed put. And a lot of people uh, used to believe that the Fed will do whatever it takes to make sure markets don't crash. And so you, when you buy stocks, you're getting a free put option. Hmm. Um, but that was when inflation was at 2%. Today, inflation may be 8%, 9%, 10%. It depends on whether uh, you believe the CPI statistics or not. Um, so now uh, the Fed may be limited in its power to do uh, uh, whatever it takes to keep markets propped up. And so uh, because inflation is such a key issue, uh, they may or may not be able to do things uh, to keep the markets up. For example, even, even though they know that low interest rates may uh, help asset prices, uh, they may still raise interest rates uh, because they have this inflation to contend with. So, uh, yeah, so we are all worried about inflation for that reason as, as investors. Um, so there are three main ways that I think of uh, how I want to deal with inflation in my own personal life. Um, the first thing is you're exactly right. As Warren Buffett said, um, he even said that at this year's uh, Berkshire annual meeting, I tweeted about it. He said, you have to invest in yourself and you have to keep your earning power high. You have to be excellent at what you do because say, if, if you're the best doctor in town or if you're the best lawyer in town or something like that, if you're the best accountant in town, like Ali is. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. People are going to come to you. People are going to pay you, whether they have this inflation or not, because your services are so valuable. Uh, if you're the 20th best accountant in a small town, no, people may not pay you during a time of inflation. Demand may dry up and, and so on. But if you're the best at what you do, then uh, you have a built-in hedge against inflation right there. You can protect your earning power and you may even have pricing power. As costs go up, you may even be able to raise your prices because people will pay for the best. So that is point number one. You have to keep your earning power strong. And one way to keep earning power strong is to be the best at what you do. That's, that's the first thing. The second insight comes from Charlie Munger. Uh, and he says... One way to deal with inflation is not to have a lot of silly needs in your life. So if you have a frugal life and uh, if you spend way less than what you make and so on, uh, what happens is uh, even if inflation um, is, is high, you don't really care that much because you have lots of savings. You don't really spend that much money. So uh, when inflation is high, what, uh, prices go up a lot. But if you're going to spend only a small portion of your income, you're going to save the rest. You don't really care if prices go up a little bit 
um, or even even by a lot if, uh, if 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 you don't have too many silly needs in your in your life. So frugality is the second key thing, and the third thing is investing. Um, so you have to invest in companies. You have to take these savings that uh, Charlie Munger talks about through frugality. You have these savings, and you have earning power through being the best at what you do. So what do you do with these savings? If you just put them in the bank account, uh, in, a, in a checking account or something like that, they will lose money because of inflation. So you have to find a way to invest these savings in an intelligent way. And so you have to be able to assess whether a business is robust to inflation or whether it is not robust to inflation. And one of the key determinants, whether a business is robust or not to inflation, is exactly what you said, pricing power. So if a business has pricing power, if it is not making a commodity, so if, if, if a business is selling, uh, say, sugar or something like that, sugar is a commodity. So and th there's no real pricing power. The business is a price taker. Whatever the price of sugar is, it has to sell sugar at that price. Uh, but whereas if you're Apple, you can raise prices on iPhone um, uh, to, to a large extent before people start switching to Android and things like that. So uh, you, you have some built-in pricing power. And this is very important during inflationary times. Uh, the second key thing is uh, if a business uses less capital, then uh, it's got a built-in hedge against inflation. So businesses that have negative working capital, businesses like that, that don't need a whole lot of capital to run their operations, they are better protected against inflation. And the, the, the reason has to do with earnings versus cash flows. As Ali said, this is a very poorly understood point. But uh, so a business may be able to raise prices. And then um, so when inflation is 10%, they may be able to raise 10, uh, their prices by 10%. And so um, so the revenues are up 10%. The costs are also up 10% because of inflation. So their profits are up 10%, right? So it seems like the business is robust to inflation because they have pricing power. But... If they have to take those profits and have to reinvest back into the business. So let's say they, they have to maintain a lot of inventory and the cost of inventory has gone up because of inflation. So now uh, what the business has to do is it has to take a portion of these profits and then use it just to buy more inventory. Um, so now what has happened is uh, the cash is not available. The cash that was used to buy extra uh, the, the extra cash that was used to buy inventory is no longer available to be distributed to the owners of the business. So uh, you may see your profits go up 10%, but your cash flows won't go up 10%. And uh, at the end of the day, owners really care about cash flows, not profits. So uh, there are two key things to decide whether a business is robust to inflation or not. The first is, are they do they have pricing power? And the second is, are they capital efficient? So both things are important. So if you are able to understand financial statements and if you're able to understand accounting and if you have these special insights about when businesses are robust to inflation and when they are not robust to inflation, you can take your savings and put those savings into businesses that are uh, robust to inflation. And so the, these are the three legs of this tool that I think about uh, when, when I uh, worry about protecting uh, myself from inflation. So uh, be the best at what you do, be frugal, invest wisely. These are the three points. Uh, so I'll let Ali add to that. 
No, I, I, I really like the way you framed that up. It's really good. I might just add a couple of my own maybe unique insights. The thing about pricing power is you want to control your fate. That's what pricing power gives you. I'll give you a bit of like a, an anecdote. You know, when I worked in uh, equity research, I, I mentioned I worked at one of the investment banks. What I covered was oil and gas. So I covered oil and gas stocks. And this was through 2015 and 2016. Um, if you recall, 2014 oil prices, I believe, were around 90 to $100 a barrel. In 2016, oil had crashed to 50 and $60. What that had done to a lot of companies is literally rendered them bankrupt. Those companies were doing layoffs. They were going out of business completely, absolutely nuts. And why is that? Very simple reason. Oil prices just dropped. They, those companies, it's not that oil and gas companies are bad companies. They can make fantastic investments. But the one thing they don't control is the price they sell their goods at. They're price takers, not price makers. They're basically take whatever price the market has and just stick to that. That usually then tells you that those companies aren't really in control of their fate. That's the one key lesson I took away from that. Um, so to 10K's point about being the best at what you do and raising prices, being able to raise your prices and control what you charge allows you to be in control of your fate. So if costs are increasing, inflation is going up, you control your fate. You can actually increase your prices as well and then still maintain that same margin and profit for yourself uh, by passing on some of those higher costs. So that's absolutely key. Um, the second point, I love the story that you gave um, just about your son investing you know, there's one quote, uh, I believe it is from uh, Sam Altman, who is one of the uh, founders or one of the heads of uh, Y Combinator, one of the um, um, top basically startup uh, incubators in the US. And what he says is, you know, given the way information is, how sophisticated people are getting, one of the true opportunities, arbitrage opportunities or true opportunities that people still have if, when they're young is time. That means that you're able to invest when you're young and take advantage of, you know, the economy and the world economy prospering and growing and advancing. And therefore, you participate in it because you invest in it. And then through time, your investment and your wealth also grows. So it's one of the, the remaining, you know, sort of arbitrage opportunities that people have. And that is that although you might not understand some of the complicated language and technology, etc., if you just do something as simple as start early, that will take care of, you know, a lot of things. You won't need to understand and worry about all this technology of how everything is going and be familiar with all the details. Because you started early, you already have a big margin of safety versus, you know, everyone else that's getting lost in the details. Exactly. And if you can fill your shopping cart with companies that, uh, that you own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and have your uh, father pay for the groceries. That's even better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, I think I think that that is uh, all all the questions that we have. I want to thank Ali once again. This was a lovely session. I really enjoyed all his insights and his uh, story and uh, everything we talked about, uh, he has such deep insight into accounting and finance and all these different topics. And not just that he's great at explaining them. So if you're not following Ali on Twitter, I would uh, encourage you to follow him there. And, uh, I'm also very excited about the course that we are going to offer soon. So 
thank you all very much for patiently listening thanks to ali for sharing his uh, insights on this podcast and uh, uh, see see you all next sunday thank you for having me on your show much appreciated thank yes. you